Good morning. This morning we continue in our series of studies in the book of Revelation, and we're in chapter 7. So you can turn there with me in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we start to understand a little bit about why God allows tribulation and trials. Why he allows the disasters and the cataclysms that come upon the earth during those seven years of tribulation talked about by Daniel, talked about throughout the scripture, even by Jesus. As we've looked at the difficulties that the earth will experience during that time that is still yet in the future, it's hard sometimes to understand what purpose there could possibly be in earthquakes, in persecution, in all types of things happening on the earth that can only be described as cataclysms. But you see, there is a purpose. There is a purpose in persecution. And it's not just to build us up. We've talked a lot about that. It's not just a a consequence of, of God's judgment that will come upon the earth in terms of all the disasters. There's something else going on in the world, even today, but especially during that time period in the future. There'll be something else going on in the world that has to do with a larger purpose, a greater purpose. And that is reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as we're in this chapter today, may we begin to understand, may we begin to gain an understanding of of how you work. And you work through the most difficult of circumstances, but that you're always working to reach the heart with the gospel, with the good news, and bring salvation to those who you desire to spend eternity with. And Lord, we know as Christians, as disciples, as those who have given our hearts to you, that we have that assurance, but not everyone does. And you do just what is necessary in the lives of the people of this earth and this planet to bring them to a place where they bow before you. And still some refuse. But Lord, we understand that you're working through those things. And we we want to be a part of that grand plan even today in reaching the world with the truth Through the most difficult and darkest of days, we want the gospel to shine, that those who receive it will become those who spend eternity with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things you'll notice, and we'll see this a few times throughout our study in Revelation, is that there are parenthetical chapters. Now, parenthetical chapters are a parenthesis of sorts. It's, it's a, there's a narrative, and we're going through it somewhat chronologically, and then all of a sudden there'll be a pause, and we'll, we'll cut. Like, like, like in a, a film, they'll sometimes cut to another scene. Meanwhile, this is going on in another place or at another time, and this is important information, but it's not consecutive to the, to the narrative that we've been in. So there is this parenthesis, this parenthetical vision that we're given that's placed in the narrative between the opening of the sixth and seventh seals. Now, last week we studied the opening of the fifth and the sixth seals. We haven't gotten to the seventh seal yet. And so right here in the middle of this narrative, and this tends to happen between the sixth and the seventh of something, there'll be a pause, and then in that pause, we'll learn a little bit more. We'll get more information about some of what's going on in the background. What takes place in this vision, though, 
will actually be fulfilled toward the end of the first three and a half years of tribulation. So in our narrative, we've made it past that. We've made it past that into the second three and a half years. And now the vision takes us back to some of the things that have taken place already, but that we don't know about yet. And so the things we're going to study, the the things in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, will likely be fulfilled during that time of the first three and a half years, toward the end of the first three and a half years of tribulation. And this would be after the opening of the first four seals. So I hopefully explain that in a way that you understand why it seems to jump around, but it actually makes a lot of sense. You can't give all the information at once, so you give sort of a narrative And then you flash back a little bit or have a little uh, cut to a different scene so you understand what was happening while all of these disasters and all of the persecution is taking place, that God has a larger plan that includes reaching innumerable numbers of people with the truth. And I think that's a great principle. And that's true today, even though we're not living in the tribulation period, that you understand that while we watch all of this ridiculousness going on in our world, the wokeness, the craziness, the sin, the celebration of sin, as we see political decisions that can only be described as evil and wicked, where the most important thing to a large number of people and politicians in our country is to be able to kill children in the womb. That seems to be the most important thing on their agenda. Population control. Not just control of the population, but control of how many people there are. The things that we see happening in our world today that don't seem to make any sense to us might feel as if everything's out of control. And where is God in all of this? But behind the scenes... Parenthetically, I assure you that God is working in a mighty way, not just in our hearts within the church, though he certainly is, but in our world in a way that you and I maybe aren't even aware of. What do you think the result of all of this wickedness in the world is doing in terms of bringing those in the world to Christ? Do you think that maybe, just maybe, God knows what he's doing? You think maybe the Holy Spirit is working in a way where despite all of this ridiculousness and despite the fact that we don't hear about it, that behind the scenes in some of the worst places to be a Christian, God is building up his church? You see, you and I, we don't have the eyes to actually see what's taking place. And so we lose hope. We despair. And we start to think that just because it wasn't on Twitter or it wasn't on mainline media, uh, mainstream media, or or, or on the, the stations that everyone watches, that somehow it didn't happen. I assure you there is much happening in our world that we are not aware of, or maybe we are aware of and many are not aware of, spiritually and otherwise. And this will be the case, especially in the last days. So, the fulfillment of what we're about to read Uh, would take place before the fifth and the sixth seal. So before the persecution of the last days, before all the devastation, God put something in place. And it's an important thing, and it needs to be mentioned. And so John shares this vision, uh, because all of the destruction that will be caused by the seventh seal will bring such devastation that people will either go one way or the other. They'll either cry out to God, or they'll, they'll, they'll reject God. And that's ultimately where everyone finds themselves today. Either you're crying out to God or rejecting God. But as we read in verse 1 of chapter 7, we read, 
that John says, After this I saw four angels, or messengers, standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Now, what is this? Well, it looks like something's about to happen. And what God is doing is dispatching four angels that are talked about throughout Scripture. It's really a very poetic and and spiritual or figurative way of talking about God controlling the earth, the four winds of the heaven, north, east, south, west. The idea that God is in control of everything that takes place, and there's a pause. There's a moment where he's not going to allow anything to happen until something takes place. Because God is in control. Can I hear an amen? He is in control. When John saw these four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, and this is all by God's command, the language suggests that God is restraining them from harming the earth. So before that takes place, God is going to do something that will set things up for the next three and a half years so that his work on earth will continue in a mighty way despite all of the wickedness and the evil that will also be happening at that time. Now, these four angels are seen churning up the great sea in Daniel's end-time prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, which we studied some months ago. It's not the first time we've seen these angels. They show up in Daniel's vision. Uh, They are the four spirits directing the Lord's will over the whole earth, talked about not just here, but in the book of Zechariah as well, in chapter 6, in verse 5. We see in Jeremiah, they brought judgment against Persia, called Elam at that point, in 596, as predicted by Jeremiah. In his word, these four angels are mentioned. They also brought about the division of Greece in 301 BC that was predicted by Daniel in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 11. So why am I saying this? So you see, when God works, he works through angels, through messengers, who are given the authority to control the events on the earth, but it's God's authority to give that, and he doesn't give it to Satan. He allows Satan to work, and even those things will work for his purposes, because, as we know all too well from Romans, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Amen? So this is what we're seeing, and I think it's such a a very powerful vision. You can walk past this uh, verse 1 and just say, oh yeah, okay, whatever. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God is in control. That is the important message here, and you can miss that if you don't stop and think it through. In Zechariah, we also learn that these four angels are used to bring about the scattering of Israel and the regathering of Israel predicted by Zechariah. So you see how God works. He works in this way. One of the other things we know from Matthew and Mark's gospel is they they will bring about, these angels, this this work of God, will bring about a future regathering of of Israel as predicted by Jesus. And finally in Ezekiel, in chapter 37, these angels are used to bring spiritual life to Israel during the last days as predicted by this prophet Ezekiel. So why am I giving you all these examples? Because these four angels come up a lot. And in every instance, it's God working sovereignly on this earth for his purposes, despite all of the efforts of mankind. I believe these four angels are God's hand, if you will, working in our world. They're representative of God being in control. Do you think these four angels are on vacation? Do you think that God has given up the throne? Do you think that just because things seem out of control in some areas of our life, that God is any less in control? I assure you, at any moment, he can snap his fingers 
and all of this will take place according to his will. Already the world is functioning and moving forward according to the will of God revealed in his word. So that's an important thing as we move forward. Now, another thing happens here in verses 2 through 3. John sees another angel, and this angel comes up from the east, and God works through angels, through messengers. And that's just what the scripture reveals. But we read in verse 2, Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. And it goes on to say that he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Now, it's interesting because we're talking about a group of people who will be sealed or set apart. But we today are a people who are sealed and set apart as well. This is a different group of people. We'll see in a minute, this this is not the church. This, in fact, is Israel during the last days. As I've said, shortly before the things that we've studied uh, even over the last week, these people, these individuals will be sealed, set apart, if you will. But I want to remind you again, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are set apart. That means sanctified, set apart, made holy in him. See, we, we know from the scriptures that That term is actually used by Paul, sealed by the Holy Spirit. So while we are in this world, we are sealed and set apart. So nothing is going to take place in this world while we're here that God hasn't okayed, that he hasn't ordained. And nothing's going to happen to you, sealed in the Holy Spirit, unless he allows it. Why is that so important? Because it's one thing to say God is in control of the world. It's another to say that he's in control of my life. Amen? You and I, we need to understand that, that we're sealed like these individuals by the Holy Spirit and that nothing, simply nothing can take place in our lives or around us that God hasn't ordained. Now, I'm not going to say that you can't choose to sin. I'm not going to say that you you won't experience consequences that are apart from God's will if you do. But I will say that the devil's not going to get the upper hand on you. The world is not going to get the upper hand on you. Nothing's going to take place in your life as you're serving Christ that God hasn't said is okay. Now, again, we've learned that he's in control of the world. We've learned that he's in control of us. At this point, you should be feeling pretty encouraged. And there will come a point, I believe, shortly before these events, probably three and a half years or so before the things we're about to talk about here, When the church of those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the world, we call this the rapture of the church, we've talked about it before, and at that point, these sealed servants of God in the room today, those of us who are alive when he returns for the church, will be in his presence like those 24 elders that we saw in chapters 4 and 5, and we'll see again, even in this chapter. So there will come a point where the church will no longer be here. And you might say, well, if the church isn't in the world, how is God going to work? He works through his bride, the, the bride of Christ, the church. And he does, and he will, until he doesn't. And then he'll work through Israel, because there is a day coming when Daniel's prophecy, the 70th week of Daniel, needs to be fulfilled. 69 sevens, or periods of seven years, have already been fulfilled predicted by Daniel in chapter 9. There remains one seven-year time period, according to Daniel, that has not yet been fulfilled. And during that time, God will work through Israel because the church will not be here. 
Israel will be the group of people that he decides to work through to reach the world, yes, for Christ. And that's so important to understand. And it's one of the reasons why people get very confused when they study the book of Revelation. They don't make a distinction between God's people Israel and God's people the church. And there are some schools of theology that suggest that today now uh, we are Israel. That somehow we are the, the group of people talked about it in the last days by Jesus. The problem with that, it, there are many problems with that, but the main problem with that is the last time I checked, we don't sacrifice animals at a temple, okay? Uh, we don't pretend to be Jews, hopefully. Uh, if, uh, if you are a Jew, that's great, but if you're a practicing Jew, then it's really kind of hard to be a Christian. But these Jews that we're going to talk about are not going to be members of the church, They're going to be Israelites who serve God and recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Very different groups of people with very different promises made by God and a different plan. This, this, when you look at this theologically, this distinguishes us at Calvary Chapel as what we call dispensationalists. It means that we believe that God works differently at different times through different groups of people. So right now we are in a dispensation, the church age. That started on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and sealed those who were gathered, the 120 believers, with the Holy Spirit. And since then, all believers in Christ in the church age are sealed with the Holy Spirit, for you can't call him Lord but by the Spirit, because God pours out his Holy Spirit into your hearts by faith. You and I, we are filled with the Holy Spirit as believers in Jesus Christ and members of the church. But there are other believers in Jesus Christ that are not members of the church. And this is the group of people we're talking about today. And they really don't come into existence until this time period in the last days. That's not to say there aren't Jews today who are members of the church. But today, if you're a Christian, you're a member of the church. Amen? The church won't be, or there won't be a church. In fact, the word for church isn't used from chapters 4 all the way to the very end of the, chapter, uh, the book, the last chapter. Because they're called saints, they're called the elect, they're called Israel, but they're not called the church. So making that distinction is essential. It's foundational to understanding the rest of this book. And so here we are in this chapter learning that God is going to seal servants who are, we'll see very clearly, Jews, not the church. And he calls out to these angels, this, this angel calls out to the angels, to keep them from harming the earth. That is, the cataclysms are not going to come upon the earth until the servants of God are sealed, set apart. Now, during our studies in Revelation chapter 13, we're going to see that the devil has a mark, not a seal as much as a mark, and he asks those who serve him to take his mark. But these men are sealed or marked by God, and so are we today. Different, but similar. And this will apparently be a visual mark which will protect them from death or harm. Uh, It makes me think of Cain. Cain was given such a mark because he, he knew that, given the chance, those that were alive on the earth at that time would kill him because he had killed his brother. And God, in his mercy, put a mark on, on Cain, and basically it said this, the, the, the message of the mark was, uh, don't kill Cain, and if you do Cain, kill Cain, uh, you're going to be uh, 
judged because God had declared judgment on him and he didn't want anyone else to do that. So the concept of a seal or a mark is common throughout scripture. Most important question today, are you sealed by the Holy Spirit? Say amen. Amen. But in the last days, we learn in verse 4 that there will be quite a number of servants sealed in this way. Look at verse 4. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now, why that should confuse people, why anyone would read that and come to any other conclusion then it's 144,000 men from the tribes of Israel. Why anyone would come to that, any other conclusion is beyond me, uh, unless you, of course, decide that Israel is now the church. And that, of course, I've shared with you already, just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, But from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed, and from Reuben, 12,000, Gad, 12,000, from the tribe of Asher, 12,000, from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. Simeon, 12,000. Levi, 12,000. Issachar, 12,000. Zebulun, 12,000. Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. And so we're given a number and we're told they're Jews. Uh, each of these individuals is a Jew and they are sealed by their tribal ancestry. So if you are Jewish and you know the tribe that you're descended from uh, and, and, and you and you're alive at this time, and and you give your life to Christ, you could be one of those 144,000. But really, to be honest with you, no one here could be a member of that group, because even if you reject Christ, you you, you really need, it's a specific group of people. That's the point I'm trying to make. And none of them are members of the church. And I believe probably none of them believe in Christ before a moment that they have with Christ. But God seals them. And there are, there are some irregularities concerning this list of tribal names. Many times we see the 12 tribes of Israel mentioned. And when they're handing out land or allocating land, Levi generally is exempted. And what they'll do is there's still 12 tribes because, and some of you may or may not be familiar with this, the tribe of Joseph was broken up into two half-tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, because Joseph, as the heir of Jacob, was given a double portion. So when we talk about the tribe of Manasseh, it's actually half a tribe. It's half the tribe of Joseph. Uh, Ephraim, half the tribe of Joseph. So Levi was generally given cities. His, the, the Levites were given cities because they were the priests. And then the land was allocated to the other 12 tribes. But two of them are half tribes. Are you with me? Say amen. What's interesting about this list is it's, one of the, it's the only time that I see this happen in any of the lists of the 12 tribes. Because sometimes Levi is included when they're talking about just the 12 tribes. Benjamin, uh, Joseph, they'll be included. But here, strangely enough, Dan is missing. The tribe of Dan is not there. And some suggest because the tribe of Dan was the first tribe to turn to idolatry in the scriptures, back in Judges 18, very early on, that they're missing from the list because there just isn't anyone among Dan who's serving God. I don't know why the name is missing, but it is. And then the half-tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim are included separately, but the half-tribe of Ephraim is given the name Joseph. So it gets very confusing, but essentially there are 144,000 Jews sealed by God before the cataclysms take place on the earth. They're sealed by God, but their fate is that of martyrdom. They're going to live and preach and share 
But they're going to die for their faith at some point over the next few years. We'll see that as we go through the scriptures. In fact, they're likely among the fellow servants of martyrs that were mentioned in the previous chapter that we studied together in chapter 6. And then we later see them in heaven in chapter 14, praising God as redeemed from the earth. So they're sealed on earth. They ultimately make their way into the presence of God where they're praising God for all eternity. Not a bad fate, but they have a unique and special anointing from God during these times of tribulation on the earth. Now, you might be asking, well, how do you know all that? Well, look at the next section that's included here. This is also part of this parenthetical vision. And in this part of the vision, it's not just that we've talked about 144,000 Jews. We're now going to talk about an, an innumerable number of Gentiles. Because, you see, we know that the nation of Israel will, will be protected for three and a half years. We've talked about that already. We'll talk about that again when we get to chapter 12. But these 144,000 Jews in the last days will go out, and they'll share the gospel, the, the message of Jesus Christ. And as we learn, these individuals and their ministry bring about what can be described as a soul harvest. That is a harvest of souls on the earth. And these Gentiles are sometimes referred to as tribulation saints. They're not the church. They're never called the church. And you shouldn't confuse them with the church. But during this dispensation of God's working on the planet earth, these individuals come to faith because Jewish messianic believers preach the gospel to them. And these Gentiles get saved. You know, that was God's plan all along that the Jews would deliver the message of salvation to the Gentiles? It's fair to say they succeeded in that because Jesus is a Jew, the apostles are Jews, the scriptures are Jewish. Christianity was a Jewish sect before it became a separate thing. But in large part, the Jews today have failed because they haven't embraced Messiah as a whole. But don't think for a minute that us, we as Gentiles today, aren't here because Jews didn't do what they were supposed to do. Because of the Jewish preaching of the gospel in the first century, we're here today, amen? But the same thing's going to happen in the last days through these 144,000. Now, some have said that's a symbolic number. Some have said that that's actually, I don't necessarily see why it would need to be. It's pretty accurate, but let's just say it's symbolic. It's still a large group of Jews from the tribes of Israel, Even if you don't like the number, I I think the number is a nice round number, 12 times 12. You know, it makes sense. But regardless, that's not even the point. The number isn't the point. The point is that they have a mission. They have a ministry not unlike ours. In fact, I dare say it's probably very much like ours. To bring the message of salvation to the world. So this is the Jewish messianic church, the true messianic church in the last days, even though they're not really members of the church of Jesus Christ. They're a separate group of people, but look at the fruit of their ministry. The next part of this parenthetical vision, again, between the sixth and seventh seals, takes place likely fulfilled during the second three and a half years of tribulation. This is the fruit of the ministry of the 144,000. This, what we're about to read, all takes place after the Gentile world ruler makes his move against Israel, after the appearance of the false prophet that we'll talk about in Revelation 13, and after the persecution and the preservation of the elect and the opening of the fifth seal that we studied last week. And if you haven't been here, 
You can listen online and catch up. But these things have already taken place. So we've just talked about what God was doing behind the scenes in the first three and a half years. Now we see what God does, not necessarily behind the scenes, but in the world during the second three and a half years. And all of this will take place before the destruction of the seventh seal. So John saw, as we see in verses 9 and 10, an innumerable number of Gentiles in heaven. And they're all there from all these different places in the world. We know they're Gentiles. How do we know they're Gentiles? Because it tells us they're Gentiles. Look at verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. That's why I said innumerable. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So you see, these individuals have come to faith, the way the 144,000 have come to faith. When we get to chapter 12, the 144,000 are mentioned again, um, and it's, it's hard because I can't go through the whole book today, but I, to give you just sort of a survey, uh, one of the things, they're described as those in verse, uh, uh, the last verse of chapter 12, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And you might say, oh, they obey God and they love Jesus. Well, you would have missed it. Let's back up a minute. They obey God's commandments. That means the law. They obey the law. They're Jews. And they hold to the testimony of Jesus. So they're Messianic Jews. They're Jews as Jews should have been had they embraced the Messiah as Jews, not as Christians, even though they are technically, not as members of the church, but as Jews who truly embraced their Messiah. You might say that had the Jews embraced Jesus, they didn't, but at the triumphal entry, when he came to Jerusalem, as predicted by Daniel, had they embraced Jesus as their Messiah at that point, that's probably as close as you can get to who these guys are. Still Jews, obeying the law, but loving Jesus. It's, it's not the same as a messianic congregation today because they shouldn't be sacrificing animals and doing all the such things today that Jews do and will do in the future. So I hope I've made that distinction. I hope I, I've helped you to understand because this is so essential to understanding the rest of this book that I wanted to take the time to make that distinction and to make it clear. But they're standing before the throne of God in heaven. They're in front of the Lamb of God. They're wearing, wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. This is an indication of what I just talked about at the triumphal entry. Do you remember in John's gospel in chapter 12? What were the Jews holding in their hands when Jesus came the first time to Jerusalem? Palm branches in their hands. Now, that's very important because it keys us in. That is really, these people are the way that they should have been had they embraced Messiah. They have white robes. We've talked a lot about this already. The imputed or given righteousness of all the redeemed. The church has white robes. So do these messianic Jews because it's Christ's righteousness that saves us. Amen. Jew or Gentile, church age, tribulation saint, it doesn't matter. There is no other way to come to God except through Jesus. He's the only way in which a person can be saved. Even if there's no church, Jesus is the only way to salvation. 
And there won't be a church, but it doesn't matter. He's still the only way to salvation. And that's so important that we remember that. And that, that we have in common with all believers in Christ. And then, of course, the palm branch is very similar to the Jews during the triumphal entry. And I think that shows us what we're dealing with here. But they proclaim that salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb of God. In other words, salvation comes through God, but through Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. You see, that message of the gospel doesn't change for the Jew or the Gentile. It was for the Jew first and then the Gentile. Paul tells us he wasn't ashamed of the power of the gospel, right? The message of the gospel. Understand it. The message isn't any different. The message that we preach to the wicked world in which we live today isn't any different than their message. It's not any different than the message of the first century. It's not supposed to be. It's the message of Jesus Christ. Notice salvation. Look, salvation back in uh, verse 7 or, or chapter 7, verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne into the Lamb. So that's so encouraging. There's not multiple messages of the gospel. There's only one message. Although the messengers may change from time to time. God may use angels. He could use Jews practicing the law. He can use Gentiles, like these innumerable number of Gentiles. But God is working to reach the world for his salvation, for man's salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, this innumerable number of angels are all uh, standing around the throne of God as well. Look at verses 11 through 12. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders. Remember, we talked about the elders, the 24 elders that represent the church. Now, that's important. Where are the 144,000 on the earth? Where are the 24 elders that represent the church? In heaven. See, that, that, that's the problem. That's why you can't conflate or confuse these two groups of people. And especially at this point in God's prophetic history. So they're standing around. These angels are standing around the throne, around the elders, and the four living creatures, the cherubim and seraphim that we talked about. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Say, Amen. Good. Now, now you're all ready for heaven. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now that's so important. They're encircling the throne of God, these angels, encircling the throne. But notice, they're encircling the four living creatures and us, the 24 elders. Now that, that's just representative. In that case, that number is truly representative for a number of reasons that I can't get into today, which we studied in chapter 4 representative of us, the church, all believers throughout time. And they fell down before the throne. They worshiped God, declaring him to be worthy. Is he worthy? Amen. He's worthy of praise, glory, wisdom, thanks, honor, power, and strength for all eternity. And then, because someone might be wondering who these people are, this great number of Gentiles, and you'd be right to ask that question. Well, guess what happens? Look at verses 13 through 17. Then one of the elders... Asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? Yeah, have you ever been asked a question by a teacher or a trainer? You know, they, I always get nervous when I ask a question. I'm asked a question because I know I'm supposed to know the answer. I mean, the teacher wouldn't be asking me the question if I didn't know the answer, right? Typically, a good teacher doesn't ask you a question they haven't taught you already, right? The answer to. 
Like in Sunday school, who is this? And the little kids are smart enough to say, Jesus. No, it's Satan. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> kids, kids know that if you go with Jesus, and if that's not the right answer, God, you're probably 90% of the time in Sunday school got the right answer, right? So here's the thing. When you get asked a question by someone that is teaching you or instructing you, generally it's either rhetorical or it's designed for you to share what you already know. In the case of John, he didn't know or he was afraid to say. But it goes on to say, uh, I answered, sir, you know. Uh, don't try that in school. If the teacher asks you a question, say, well, you know. I'm not going to go over well. But... And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are all symbols, but they make their point. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. This is describing a lot of the conditions on the earth at that time, which you talked about last week. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That sounds pretty good to me. I'd still rather be a member of God's church. But being a tribulation saint means you're someone who suffered and died for your faith. There are members of the church every day who give their life for the gospel. But we're fortunate in that I would say most members of the church die a peaceful death and are remembered and celebrated. Their life is celebrated and they pass on to eternity. I think it's important that we need to remember this, that all people die. Death is a part of life. I'm not trying to depress anybody, but it is. And it isn't Better as a Christian to die peacefully in your sleep versus die being martyred for your faith. It's really according to God's will. This group of people really aren't given a choice. To give their lives to Christ means that they'll more than likely be killed or beheaded for their faith. So that's not the case with us. But have you noticed something? Let me just pause a moment. Have you noticed that in places in the world today where being a Christian could very well cost you your life, or or in fact may cost you your life, or at least you'll be persecuted or ostracized, that the church is stronger in places like that than it is in places like we live in, where we have the freedom to gather, which we're very grateful for. And again, I'm not asking for that. I I don't necessarily have a martyr's complex. I'm not saying I want to be martyred. I'm saying I'm, I'm thankful that we have this glorious opportunity to praise God without that threat. But have you noticed the state of the church today in places where that threat exists? It's strong at a level that we can't even get close to. The biggest persecution that we deal with is that we have a 9 o'clock service and some people have to get up early. That was sarcasm. The biggest persecution we have is that things sometimes are difficult on the road or that we, and it's not even really persecution, I'm being facetious. The point is, we don't have anything to complain about, can I hear an amen? Have you realized that already? As a Christian, I'm not saying, you know, listen, you're dealing with an illness. You have problems with your children. No one has a perfect life. I'm not talking about the things that we deal with that everyone has to deal with to some degree in life. I'm talking about as a Christian. You know, do you go to work and they say, are you a Christian? 
deny Christ? Do they say, if you're a Christian, you, you have to quit your job, we don't want you here? I mean, maybe if you work at some of these big tech firms, I don't know, but they, maybe they do. Maybe some people do get harassed in our country for being Christians. But for the most part, I think it's fair to say that when we walk into a grocery store, nobody looks at us and says, <clears throat> we have to wear, you know, like they did to the Jews in the Holocaust, we have to wear a patch that recognizes us as Christians so that people can treat us poorly. Brothers and sisters, we, we need to stop our griping, our moaning about whatever we perceive as persecution for being Christians, because we don't know anything about that. And thank God. Amen? I'm not saying we should. I'm saying we don't. So we have tremendous freedom that they will not have, and yet they get the job done. And I wonder, are we? I wonder, are we? So as I look at this, I, I realize that there's something to aspire to here. There's an example here to follow. You have these Jews who share the gospel, and it results in an innumerable number of Gentiles, a soul harvest of people being saved. We, we all want revival, but no one wants to go through persecution or dark days. Here's the sad truth. Persecution in dark days oftentimes are the means by which revival comes. Great awakenings seem to always come out of a very difficult time in mankind's history. So, could it be that some of the difficulties, if not most or all of the difficulties that you and I are experiencing in our culture today, I'm talking about you can't send your kids to public school without them hearing about transgenderism and wokeism and gender confusion. I'm talking about the fact that every other day we're told that killing babies in the womb is, is, is a good thing and, and a right that people should celebrate. I'm talking about all of this nonsense, homosexuality, all the things in our world that we're surrounded by. We look at it and we think, oh, the world, is, forget it, the world is done. It's a dark world a ver- and becoming increasingly darker every day. But if you walk around saying all hope is lost, you miss the memo. When these things happen, these are the times where we, we're not 144,000, we're a lot more than that, that we in the church have this glorious opportunity to say, I know you're frustrated because there's lots of people, the majority of people out there agree with you. They think this stuff is crazy and it's nuts. It's like five people on Twitter who say it's okay. You understand that? The people pulling the levers and pushing the buttons are a couple of demon-possessed individuals who have all the power. But the rest of us have an opportunity to speak to a large number of people who agree with us, at least on the principles of what's right and what's wrong. Are we doing it? Are we allowing ourselves to be silenced? Are we offering the hope in Jesus Christ? And that's the only thing you can offer. The hope in Jesus Christ to people who are trying to figure out what's going on. I don't recognize this world. You know how many times I hear that? People say to me, especially people my age and older, I don't recognize this world anymore. I'm going to move to a red state. And yeah, it's a little bit easier and better off in some states than others. Clearly, because those red states are filling up. But for the rest of us who are called to live in a blue state, a very blue state, let's stop a moment and realize there are people living here that need to hear the truth. Can I hear an amen? Amen. And these people become a wonderful example And I think what we should do is aspire to be like them. I'm talking about those Jews who bring about the harvest of Gentiles. We want to see a harvest of those around us who don't know the gospel coming to know the gospel, to know Jesus Christ. 
So John didn't necessarily know who they were or where they came from, but the elder, one of the elders revealed that they had come out of the great tribulation. Out of tribulation comes salvation. Out of tribulation comes salvation. They had washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's an interesting picture, isn't it? You had a white robe, but you wash it in blood, and it becomes whiter. We understand the symbolism. That's what it is. Symbolism doesn't make sense, you know, literally, but it's not supposed to. The white robes, we've talked about them. Christ's righteousness. And they're not in heaven until this moment. They, they weren't in chapters 4 and 5. These individuals didn't exist yet. And now they're in heaven in this vision that we receive, that John receives. Their fate is the answer to the question of the fifth seal. Remember back when we looked at the fifth seal last week? He says, Then each of them was given, these are martyrs, each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. So that's what the fifth seal was pointing toward, and that's why after the fifth seal is mentioned, we have chapter 7, which explains it. See, the book of Revelation is very logical. It actually is. It's not, it's not scattered and difficult to understand at all. But as we look at that, that was God's plan. That through martyrdom, a large number of people would be saved. If the seven years of tribulation weren't to come upon the earth, ever, I believe none of those people would have been saved. How many people are going to get saved living in the world in which we live today because it is really ridiculously messed up? Are you starting to see behind the curtain? Are you starting to get a glimpse of what's really going on in our world? Because don't listen to CNN. Don't listen to MSNBC. I would even argue that Fox News doesn't get it right. Do you understand that God is working in this world in powerful ways and he wants to use you? All is not lost. These are times of great spiritual opportunity and we need to make the most of them. These martyred tribulation saints, like the church, are saved by the blood of Christ. All those that come to Christ are saved by the same blood of Christ. And the elder revealed the heavenly rewards for these faithful martyrs. Look at the reward they receive. These faithful Gentiles are before the throne of God. You could just stop there. Check, please. That's it. I don't need to know anything else. I'm before the throne of God. It's a good eternity. I don't really need more. But it goes on. And serve day and night in his holy temple. And God who sits on the throne will abundantly bless them throughout the 100,000 years on the earth. They're going to be blessed and blessed and blessed. They'll never hunger, thirst, or be scorched by the heat of the sun. The people on the earth will at that time. And the Lamb of God will be their shepherd to lead them to springs of living water. That's a message that talks about the Holy Spirit. That talks about God's goodness, his grace, his mercy, his blessings. And here's the beauty of it all. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We're crying a lot of tears these days. We've lost people, not just passed on to eternity, but some people have walked away. We've experienced loss in in a number of ways over the last few years, and maybe some of us have lost freedom, lost jobs. Maybe some of us have just lost perspective. Maybe some of us are depressed and really bummed out because they've allowed these things to infiltrate their heart and their mind. Today's about encouraging you. God has a plan. Get with his program. Lord, Heavenly Father, 
as we now prepare our hearts to receive communion. We want to say, Lord, come quickly. But we also know that there's a work to be done, and we're grateful that you're doing a work in this world, and you're doing that work through your church, even today. Lord, help us to give us eyes to see and help us to understand that when we see the darkness in the world, when we see the wickedness and the immorality and the celebration of sin, that rather than getting disgusted, we become inspired to reach this world with the truth. It only shows and means that they really need to hear it. And if they reject it, they reject it, but at least we will have been faithful to preach the truth Faithful to you, faithful to the mission you've given us, faithful to the mission of the church, and faithful to honor you with our lives and perhaps even our deaths. For all eternity, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would just work mightily in these dark days. In Jesus' name, amen.